0: Welcome to the Public Morality. The 2022 midterm elections are behind us. Well, sort of. There's still some vote tabulation to be conducted in several House races across the country and a runoff for the Georgia Senate seat. But unlike the 2020 election, the Georgia runoff will not decide who controls the Senate. Democrats will control the Senate, while the House appears leaning toward a small Republican majority, but that has yet to be determined by the time of this broadcast. But that does not prohibit us from discussing some of the takeaways. What does this mean for American democracy going forward? What are the lessons to be learned? And what is the future for former President Donald Trump? To answer those questions and others, I'm joined by Auburn University political science professor Mitchell Brown. Professor Mitchell Brown, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you very much for having me. Given that almost a week has passed since the midterm elections, and we're recording this conversation at a time when we don't have all uh, uh, of the results, especially in the House. Um, how would you assess the midterm elections?
1: I think the midterm elections. Well, let me stop and say what I do is study election administration and how elections are run. And the midterm elections were run really well, the same way the 2020 elections were run really well. Um, fr- from a more political angle, the the midterms I think was a surprise to all of the pollsters, all of the pundits. Um, Certainly, a surprise to the people who are engaged in fear mongering on both sides about you know the decline of Western civilization and American democracy, or you know from both perspectives. Um, and I think what we saw was a really interesting reflection of uh, public will that's tired of Trump Republicans.
0: You know, a lot has been made about uh, former President Trump um, and Trump Republicans. When you examine um, our, our current, America's current democratic challenges, whether myth, myth or, or real, uh, did these challenges begin with the emergence of Donald Trump in 2016? Is there, or is there something, was there something larger at work in your view?
1: No, I, I think there's uh, been something going on for a long time that led to Trump being able to claim the kind of power that he was able to claim in 2016. I mean, we, we, we can't forget that Trump has been talking about wanting to be president of the United States since the 1980s. I, I remember reading um, Gary Trudeau and the Doonesbury comic strip in the 80s, and he was mocking Trump's interest in being president of the United States then, and, and nobody took him seriously. And um, he he's, you know, one thing that you can say for Donald Trump is that he's tenacious, right? That's a long time to want to be president of the United States and build up to the point where you could do that. And what what we saw in 2016 and the real interest in Trump, I, I think, was able to happen because of the interaction of a bunch of different things. Um, some of it was dissatisfaction with the politics of the Republican Party and where it had been going. and And this probably was born out of... 19 was it 1994 and contract with America, and Trump was poised to really take advantage of some people who have um, very strong deep-seated feelings and um, he spoke for a bunch of people who felt like nobody else spoke for them and they didn't care at all that he didn't pass the republican morality litmus test that didn't matter to him at all they didn't care that he lied about things they just cared that he won and that he would do anything to one and they thought that was great
0: clearly this election, regardless of how the the, the final uh, vote tally um, turns out with the House of representative seats, bucked uh, historical trends, uh, if we, and then the normal trend being the party controlling the White House, in this case the Democrats, um, usually lose seats. Obviously, the Democrats um, will will hold the Senate. Um, the House will be close, however it goes. Um, what are your thoughts as to why democrats are able to exceed expectations is it part of the trumpism or is there more to that
1: well i I think some of the trump republicans were running on trump and i think there are a lot of people who are tired of trump and so that maybe is a piece of it um i think there were a fair number of people who were galvanized by the Dobbs decision. I think there's, um, you know, real fear and for real good reasons about um, where the country is headed. And I, there's also been a real schism in the Republican Party. They've just been very quiet about it until recently about the Trump Republicans versus the rest of the Republican Party, you know, the the people who really consider themselves Reagan Republicans. And I think we saw some of that, too. Um, and, and, and so what you get is moderates who appear to be willing to vote for Democrats at a time when they normally wouldn't be because they were rejecting that and that narrative and that, that picture of America.
0: The uh, 2020 results, do you see it as a sea change or or is is this a a specific event or or has our politics shifted in your view to a more uh, nuanced uh, way of thinking that, uh, you know, we Are we past that point that we just we just vote our party interests, or now are we taking a more nuanced approach to what individuals are saying, or is this just an exception in your view?
1: You know, it's a really interesting question because what, what we see in some places around the country is dissatisfaction with both of the parties and rising numbers of independence. Uh, open primaries allows people to do that more comfortably than in places with closed primaries. Um, and so on the one hand, something's changing in some places and what that pretends, I i, I won't claim to know. Uh, my, my sense is that once we can get out of a place of feeling like we're in the middle of a crisis that a lot of people want it to just go back to the way it always was. And the the sort of constant back and forth between the Dems and the Republicans. But I think you, what what we're also seeing is um, so, some, re, uh, some shifting of people who are attached to each of the parties that, that is different than what we've seen over the last 50 years. And so some folks being attracted to the Republican Party that normally would have been Democrats and vice versa.
0: uh it, you know it's sort of ironic uh, given where President Biden currently sits in the polls uh he's seemingly uh more unpopular uh if you would uh but I would dare say uh president Clinton, former president Clinton nineteen ninety four and former president obama twenty ten could only dream of the type of mid uh term results that Biden enjoyed. So what, what what does that say about Biden? Is, is boring a new thing? Is it just unpopular a new thing? How how do you how do you uh, assess his success as president?
1: You know, it's such an interesting thing. Um he he's been able to do a fair amount and people Tend not to give his administration that much credit for the things that they've been successful at, Um, myself included. I got to tell you, I uh, I didn't go into the midterms expecting what we saw Um, and, And one of the things that we saw first thing on Wednesday after Election Day was the White House saying that this was a reflection of their brilliant strategy. And my first reaction was like, nah, that's that can't be true. Um, and, and so it's such an interesting thing. We hear so many people who are like, Biden's too old. We need somebody else. He shouldn't run again. But and, and, and the polling figures um, would suggest that's the case. But what happened in the midterm was so unexpected historically that it, it, it does give one pause about how well he's doing. Uh, but, but my sense is that this really wasn't about a, it wasn't a pro Biden vote. It was it was an anti-Trump vote.
0: Well, I mean that in itself is 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 interesting because at least in my lifetime, I I mean usually the party out out of the uh, uh, White House, not controlling the White House, tries to make the election either they try to localize it or they try to make it about the incumbent president, depending on where that person stands in polling, popular polling. I don't recall ever. An election being about a former president who may be vying to return. This is this is a new phenomenon for me.
1: Well, well, Trump's a new phenomenon, right? He's he's completely antithetical to who we think about as being president of the United States, and um, so egocentric, and and so maybe that's what. That's why that's so different, that, that the public is responding to that. And, and that he's been able to hijack the Republican Party, that, that the Republican Party was, if you were going to be successful within the party for the, the last four to six years, you needed to pretend like you were behind that.
0: Uh, I'm, gonna qu- I'm gonna turn our attention um, to the House of Representatives specifically. And uh, this is not a prediction, but l- let's let's assume the Republicans eke out a small uh, majority, certainly not clear the time of this recording, Uh, but it could be a scenario where the speaker, presumably um, uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy, will be the next, will will, will take that seat. Would he, in effect, be severely weakened because a big part of these the most vociferous part of his coalition is made up of very, very strident members who are um, more inclined to support the orthodoxy of Donald Trump, um, which seems to me would make it next to impossible for anything to get done in a divided government. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I feel like I have to caveat saying this or talking about this by saying I'm, I'm really not a congressional scholar. Um, but, but my guess is from watching this over a lifetime that, yeah, probably the Republicans will eke out a, a lead in the House and will just be deadlocked for the next two years. And what people will really do for the next two years is um, run the next presidential race forever. And it will feel like forever that the 2024 election takes.
0: But but isn't that, hasn't that been a trend for some time? I mean, uh, we're expecting sometime this week that uh, former president Trump might announce that he's running for president. So, I mean, haven't we been in this sort of cyclical mode? I remember back in 1968, um, when Robert Kennedy uh, declared he was a candidate for president, that was in March of 1968. So now it's like, uh, as soon as the general election's over, let's get ready for the midterm. As soon as the midterm's over, let's get ready for presidential. So we're like in one endless political election of some kind.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's 100 percent right. And and with the Congress unable to really do much of anything, they'll just spend more time doing that.
0: Well, they'll, they'll, they'll definitely spend more time raising money, right? <laughs>
1: right, right. Well, re- you know, I, I think what we're in the house, at least, what w- part of the job now is constant fundraising because you're constantly campaigning for the next election with um, with two-year terms.
0: So I'm wondering, when we, as we look at American politics—that that it it that the strident orthodoxy, whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right, it has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. Um, would you say that might be part of the epitaph of the 2022 midterm elections that the strident uh, policies have a shelf life?
1: Uh, oh yeah, I um, we don't have an appetite in this country nor a tradition of on most issues being too left or too right. And we like the center. We have a system that favors moderate politics and incremental change. And when people make proposals that would change that, often those proposals are shut down really fast. I'm remembering in the 1990s when um, Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Torres wrote a book called The Miner's Canary. Um, and their part part of their conclusion about how to fix things is a PR system with multi member districts, um, and you know when you look at other countries that have those kind of systems. Um what you get is more extreme politics and faster change, and it's just not what we like. And you know, so, so that that was that was a movement that died fast. Um, you know, we might see that maybe there's some of that in the moves towards um, ranked choice voting now that we would get different kinds of candidates winning, but but as a country, we don't have an appetite for that.
0: Um, I, I uh, watched um, footage over the weekend of supporters of Arizona gubernatorial candidate, Republican candidate, Carrie Lake, protesting that the election was fraudulent without, without any proof. Um, my question, if, if it, internally the Republican Party remains silent in the midst of unproven allegations, which is we talked earlier about the Trump playbook, are are these not I guess, tacitly legitimizing such claims, uh, at least on one side of the political aisle. And so that that continues to have a shelf life, that type of approach.
1: Yeah. So one of the interesting things that Trump was able to do to the sort of nature and tenor and quality of our politics is normalizing blatant lying to a degree that it wasn't normalized before. You know, there's there's always obfuscation and sleight of hand in politics. but but the blatant lie that didn't matter if there was no evidence, um, that, that's been new. And the the idea that the, the thing that matters most is that I win and that my party wins and not that there's any kind of real integrity in the system um, is it, a real gross thing that has happened to American politics and my one of my complaints from the beginning um, is that and the beginning meaning meaning the beginning of the Trump era, that the people really were putting party ahead of oaths to the Constitution, and party power. You know, and, and parties exist; they're private organizations that exist to control government policy by having their members elected to government and if you place the party and the power of your party as more important than the principles in the constitution, um, you you really made a a particular choice about first principles, right? You know, winning at all costs, um, that is a danger to our democracy. And that this was made possible in some ways and widespread acceptance of it, um, I think from, uh, changes in media and how we all talk to each other and relate to each other through social media, through the Internet, which was supposed to be this wonderful democratizing tool to that, that would allow not just the elites who had access to running news stations, but everybody to put truth out there and instead... Um, that this, you know, potentially wonderful platform was was weaponized and monetized and um, really been allowed to distort what reality is, and I think it's a a really big problem that we're going to have to grapple with as a nation about what's most important and and what what first principle leads and and I don't think we're there yet I don't think we've quite solved it the the 2022 election results made me a little bit hopeful that it's not going to be quite as dire as as folks were worried about but but I don't think we're quite there yet.
0: Now, what, I'm, what I'm, Part of what I'm hearing you say I'm thinking back as you were giving your last answer I'm, I'm thinking back uh to Madison's concerns about factions, and factions are not just political parties now, but they're also special interests. And whatever you say about Madison's view on factions, I think one thing that's clear, American Democratic Republican form of government has never been designed to be a zero-sum game. And isn't that sort of dominating our political ethos right now?
1: yeah I mean the whole the whole design of the system is that there's these constant checks and balances and at, at all levels of government, across levels of government and um, this is what why we have such a complicated intergovernmental system why federalism is bit hard baked into it why we've got division of powers and checks within those divisions of powers. And there's a layer of this historically that's also been about the parties checking each other and holding each other accountable. And, and when we look historically at points of real failure, it's been when parties were able to really get a stranglehold in places and nobody could buck that. And so at one level of that check on extreme power goes away when you don't have real party competition.
0: Yeah, I I, I remember uh, back in in the aftermath, of the 2008 election, that the Republican Party um, was very introspective in the aftermath around that post-election December to January period. And there was a lot of talk that they they had to do some re-examination of the party um, in order to be that uh, big tent that they portrayed Then along came the Tea Party in 2010, uh, 2009, and and their midterm fortunes changed in 2010 and 14. Then Trump emerged in 2016. Is the Republican Party, in your view, ready to have that um, difficult conversation uh, about being uh, uh, a Big Ten party? Or, or, or In your view, are they... Still content to be a hom- homogenized uh, party in terms of race and one that's mostly male dominated.
1: Yeah, I, I think he, I think there's a real schism in the Republican Party right now. Um, you, you see that, it, and and the voices of the people who were um, never Trumpers were really silenced for several years, and and I think they're getting louder. Um, particularly on the national scene, maybe not so much in certain states where the Trump Republicans are really still very strong and in control. Um, and, And I think that part of the Republican Party is ready to be the big tent again. Um, But but I don't think everybody's there. So I I still think they're going to be fighting internally about who's really in charge and what the the principles of the party are about for a while. And and I think this is actually historically a, a really interesting thing to watch. Um, because the, the Republicans have been so good and so much better than the Democrats um, from a strategy perspective on staying on message, on keeping their people on message. You you saw real differences, um, like you're thinking about Clinton versus Bush and their administrations and who talked to the media and when they talked to the media, what they said and whether they were always on message and the Republicans have historically have been, you know, in my lifetime, I'm so much better at this than the Democrats have been. But because of this schism, because of the, the Trump Republicans, I, I think we're witnessing a real change in the party. Well, on the other hand, there are people who are attracted to the party who um, are, are, are sort of new and different to the party, and it'll be interesting to see if they can have any influence. I I think I read something today that suggested that the percentage of the Muslim vote in America that voted for uh, the Republicans was up close to uh, at least 12%, if not higher than that, in the 2022 election versus the 2018 election. And, and so there are other people who are really interested in the party, and, but what's not clear to me is, is why. And, and again, I'm not really a party scholar. I don't. This is me just speculating. Um, I, I really just watch elections and how they're run and who's running them and what they're doing.
0: But given that there there was um uh, no red wave, uh, as as many predicted um i I have read a number of articles over the weekend that suggest the Republican party will try to some many of them would will, will try to move away uh from trump and I'm wondering from you just just on your observations is just moving away from President Trump the way he has comported himself since 15 that seems like a much more difficult task than it sounds you just can't walk away how do you see that
1: yeah yeah it's a super interesting thing it was it was easy for people to align themselves when trump became president um, or when it was clear he was going to become president to people within the party um because that's what one does right you line up it's why the republicans um on, on a, a several fronts have been so much better you you get in line and you do what the party leadership says and um and and so it means walking away when there's a fight in the party um it is more challenging because because they're not used to behaving that way from my perspective um, and I think there is that schism that's there now. Um, I I would guess that the the Trump Republicans will lose power in the party over the next couple of election cycles. But I I think it will be a hard fight. Um, that that kind of that that kind of demagoguery in our system is hard to support and maintain
0: long term. Mm-hmm. And and not that uh, I'm asking you to make any predictions about the trajectory of of the classic Trump supporter. But one thing we do know about demagoguery is that it tends not to embrace compromise. It tends to be more strident and not embrace compromise. And if that being the case, many of those people could very well, if if, if history repeats itself, um, just sort of opt out in terms of their participation.
1: Well, that's certainly an option. But if they if they have other uh, options besides Trump, I, I would guess that that's what people will do and 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 run to those options. And I, I think we're seeing some of that. Um, th- they're not likely to be options that the Democrats will like, <laughs> but but they might be options that are more pal- palatable to um, the people who aren't Trump Republicans, but part of the Republican Party than Trump is.
0: So, regardless uh, of the outcome in, in, in the House races that, that are remaining, um, when you just sort of look at uh, the upcoming Congress, let, let, let's assume for a moment that that, that uh, even, even Dems uh, Democrats are in the majority. What is the likelihood issues such as climate change and codifying abortion rights in the wake of the Supreme Court's uh, decision in the Dobbs case uh, will occur?
1: Um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. So like uh, um, imagine because we don't know right now that the Democrats somehow prevail and are in control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, you know, what kind of things can they do? They're still not that in control. Um, w- one of the interesting things in terms of rhetoric is watching in the last 20 years, presidents be elected by a slim margin and, and say that they have a mandate and act like they have a mandate and and people line up and, and the Republicans seem to be better at that than the Democrats are. Um, and, and so I can't imagine that even if the Democrats end up changing the house that or, excuse me, changing the house, if the Democrats end up keeping the house, that they would be able to really get away with um, some, some of the bigger parts of their agenda that people, even, even in the, you know, moderates in the, in Congress might be opposed to because their voters would be opposed to it. Um, so, so I, I, I can't, I can't imagine we'd have just this huge, you know, golden age of democratic um, legislation. I, I'm, I'm still flustered and perplexed by um, House Bill One. Uh, the the election reform bill that was just a hodgepodge mess and there was no way it was going to ever pass because it shouldn't have even been legislation in the first place because it contradicted itself in places and there, there at least in in the last in most recent years um, doesn't seem to be unified cohesiveness um, that would produce the kind of legislation that would you know change america in the long term. maybe i'm wrong. maybe i'm wrong. maybe maybe we're um, ready for some new deal action and some great society action, but i don't i don't really see it.
0: i i would i'm going to add to 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 your 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 comment that it's always difficult when you craft in my view reactionary legislation and that bill seemed to be reactionary reacting to what a lot of the state legislatures did. And that just seems to always be a non-starter for, for a lot of people.
1: Um, yeah, and, and a bill where everybody just like piled on in in, in some kind of like bizarre spaghetti mess. Um, yeah, absolutely.
0: Now, my I have a few more questions for you. Um, these are all uh, exam questions for, for my civics class. Tomorrow. So, but we don't air until um, after the class uh, is um, has been conducted. So you will not be helping anybody uh, in in your responses. But I'm curious, what steps would you take within the with uh, to put to ensure that both parties are operating within the framework of the democratic guardrail?
1: Well, if I got to be in charge.
0: You are. No, we just made with the public reality. you are in charge.
1: <laughs> All right, I'm in charge. That's awesome. Um everybody be afraid. I I think You need
0: to send that memo to your husband as well. Is he unaware of that that you're in that, charge? I I'll,
1: I'll be sure to tell him when he gets home. Okay. Um, <laughs> I you know, to to me the, the most important thing that that people need to do is um take their oaths seriously and to reflect seriously on the the kinds of principles that we are supposed to be upholding in this country that are are, are supposed to make us um i don't want to say better you know but 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 certainly Democratic, um, that, that we take our oath to the Constitution seriously when, um, when, when our laws are hurting people, that we thoughtfully engage in um, legal reform, that people don't be seduced by the power that they have and that they consider the least among us when they write any law or people working in bureaucracies when you know there's there's no perfect piece of legislation when you're engaged in implementation and you have bureaucratic discussion discretion that 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 you keep an eye towards safeguarding the things that are so important like liberty and freedom, like equality. Um, and and that we keep, again, the like, you know the the least among us in mind, and that we not embrace principles ar- that that are just about personal power or party power, but think about as a community who we are and what we need to do to live together well.
0: You, you know that answer sort of addresses one, of my real concerns and it's one that I um, reiterate with my class that there is a lack of civic maturity especially within the political parties and what I specifically what I mean by that is I'd like to get your thoughts on this if my party does it I can find qualifiers and exceptions for why it's okay if you do it assuming you're from another party and you do it then it's a problem and until we have that kind of civic maturity to even call out our side hence you know fraudulent elections or or some of the things that democrats did to get some of the more extreme candidates elected in the republican side until we can call out our side are we not just going to be just sort of stagnant in this abyss of unproductive politics
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a reason the founders were some of the founders were worried about factions, right? And um and and, and you know, not to to be trite, but the the phrase, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's real. and and we have to hold ourselves accountable. And we have to hold when we're in power, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard than the people in, you know, the people who elect us have held us to because a lot of people hold their noses when they, you know, when they, when they choose to vote. And we have a real responsibility when, when you have power to Remember that it's not about you and that you're not special. And I think that's um, and that we're all just people and we're all trying to figure this out and we're trying to figure it out together and and hurting other people for personal gain or party gain. Um, that shouldn't be what we're doing. That shouldn't be what we're about.
0: Hmm. You know, one of the common refrains that I hear uh, is, uh, well, both major parties, Democrats, Republicans are guilty of something. And it always seems to me that it assumes that the magnitude of the culpability is also the same. How would you respond to a question like that, to a response like that?
1: Well, I, I, I got some real sympathy to to that kind of statement. I've been really angry with both of the parties for a really long time. <laughs> and 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 so you know, yeah, everybody's guilty of something, and the, the, but there there is a question a degree. And um and and that I think, is where we need to pay attention. And, uh, you know, one of the problems, though, that we're facing in all of this is that we have no idea, we, we have no common shared understanding of truth right now. And and that's a, a, another problem that we're faced. And, and so it's really easy to throw stones and blame other people, um, in part because of how we get information and who we trust and who we trust to be um, the the purveyors of truth. And, And we're at this really bizarre place historically um, where, where everything's really in flux and, um, and and because we're listening to different authorities who are saying really different kinds of things, it, it's hard to get to a place, I think, where we can um, find any middle ground and just be people together.
0: Um, well, that sort of goes back to the, to the famous or infamous, however you look at it, Kellyanne Conway Comment when she talked about alternative facts. And so that's been normalized to some degree.
1: Yeah, completely. You know, the, the idea that um, I, I, I keep friends um, with, with various family members and old acquaintances from back in the day who I, I disagree with vehemently on social media platforms that I'm on. um, And and I've joined a lot of different kinds of social media platforms because I'm fascinated by hearing what other people believe is true and real, and w- what is a fact to one person is a blatant falsehood to another, and you know how do we find a common ground? For for some of this, it's like easy, right? Um, not easy. That I don't want to make light of some of the problems we've been having, but you know one one of the one of the real reasons that misinformation uh, has been able to flourish and disinformation flourish around elections and election processes is that. When we do civics and education in this country, we we don't ever talk about processes and how processes work. And we don't ever get into the nitty gritty of that stuff. And so we do a really terrible job of educating people about how elections actually work. And so because people don't understand what's happening, they're easy prey for bad information. And, And so there's a way to fix that. Um, there are other areas, though, where um, alternative facts are harder to fix because there's just no real good way at dealing with this problem.
0: I, I don't want to um, depress anyone who may be listening, but to your point, um, I mean, there have been a plethora of alternative facts still. Um, since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, and that still has a life. So <laughs> these things may not be going away anytime soon.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my, my favorite of all of them is about UFOs, right? Um <laughs> that's of, of all of the alternative facts world. Um that that's that's my my personal favorite. <laughs>
0: So you, I'll give you UFOs. You give me the Kennedy assassination. Cause I, Absolutely. I, I, I've read them all, it seems like. And I'm just like, no, really? No, you don't, you don't believe that. And what's well, the scary part is, I don't know how the UFO book sales are, but these Kennedy assassination books, these alternate theories, they do sell. I mean, they have a market.
1: Yeah, right. And, and so one of the reasons for that, and, and same with the UFOs, and it's why I enjoy it so much, is that th- there is secrecy, right? We we don't know everything. The government, you know, is keeping files and um, the government does keep secrets and they probably keep too many secrets. They probably classify too many things. And in the lack of transparency, false information can spread quite easily. And um, so it, it's, it it's a in the age of information, um, it, it's a real problem we have
0: to grapple with. So when you when you think about where American democracy finds itself right now, uh, and not just in the last two years, so you, you go back as far as you like, uh, are there some lessons learned that um, we can take away uh, from the midterm going forward? And you can start that is back as far as you like.
1: Um. Yeah. I, I. Um. So, lessons that we can take away from the midterms that um, that the, the parties need to know that the American public doesn't have an appetite for anything. That that there are bounds on what people are willing to tolerate. Um, I think that's probably a pretty good lesson. Um, I, I think we need to continue to relearn the lesson all the time that we're doing a poor job of civics education and um, that, that we need to really rethink what it is that people need to know um, and, and probably around something around public values and how we relate to each other. And um, you know, the, if you look at public opinion polling and, and trust in government and rally, be, rally behind the flag stuff, right, it's obvious that the trust in government's been declining steadily Um since the 1960s and and a lot of this that fueled this is about the government lying and being caught in lies and, um, you know, lifting up and leading with honesty is real important and, and that seems to be really hard in today's day and age and, and we got to figure out more about transparency and honesty and about forgiving each other too. Um, we there, there's very little forgiveness in today's culture and yeah I think we're all flawed and we're all human and we need to figure out how we can forgive each other and move forward to work towards a common goal without having to have a kind of an enemy to do that and um, really re-envision what, what it is we're supposed to be about and what we're supposed to be working towards together. Because there are a lot of frightening things in the world. You mentioned um, climate change earlier. There's a lot we should be afraid of. Uh, it's hard to put a, a, a face on that enemy, except maybe our own and nobody likes doing that. And um, and, and so these are the things I think we have to figure out.
0: And
1: well, maybe- I, I have- Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I probably didn't answer your question. So
0: No, you did. No, you, you actually did. And I'm, I'm going to follow up because it is my contention, which is actually a book I'm working on. So it's my contention. You mentioned um, a common enemy. And to that extent, I would argue that the fall of the Berlin Wall took away a common enemy. And we now see ourselves as who don't agree with us as the existential threat. And I wondered how you saw that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that has been intentionally fueled by actual enemies right um when we look at what we know about how disinformation campaigns work and where they come from, we have been the targets of a very successful disinformation campaign that um, comes from outside the country meant to destabilize us meant by um, really creating further cle- using existing cleavages to to make it impossible to work together and to build together and you um, and we can't even agree now who the enemy is, except each other in our communities, um, and, and that's that's a shame that 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 we that we've been played so well.
0: After all, we've talked about is this thing that uh, Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison forged in the Federalist Papers that. Madison crafted in, in the constitution. Is, is this democratic, Republican form of government? Is it, ir- is it irretrievable? I mean, I mean, how do you see it? And if so, uh, how do we get it back if we can
1: Yeah, I I actually still remain optimistic about the institutions and the safeguards in the institutions working. Um, I, I think there've been times when, that the moderation and incrementalism that's hard baked into our system has really failed us as a people. Um where, where we needed once we recognized that we were wrong to make faster, better changes than our system typically allows. But but that said, I, I think the safeguards are in place. I You know, the, the folks who've been fear-mongering on both sides, I think they're wrong. I, I think the institutions will survive. Um, and I think in the absence of something better, they ought to. And, and I do think there's an absence of something better. I can remember back the first time I went to graduate school being part of a reading group where we read um, we read lots of utopian novels and talked about how to create the perfect government. And it's an exercise I like to do with when I'm teaching undergraduate students a lot. And and, and the, the conclusion that, that I drew then and that I still come to is that um, maybe there's something better, but realistically, I don't know what that would be and what it looks like. And, and I think I think we'll be okay.
0: Professor Mitchell Brown, Auburn University, who has been deemed by the Public Morality as completely in charge. So make sure you, make sure you get that memo out before it changes. Um, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today on the Public Morality, much, much appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I love talking about this stuff and I, um, I'm honored to be part of your show.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.